Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome to Making Data Simple. This is where we try to make everything simple. It doesn't always work out that way. It's kind of like my taxes. It could be simple, but no, we got to make things as complex as humanly possible. So nobody can figure it out, I guess. Today, we have a topic of AI and founding tech companies. My guest today is Matt Heisey. It's a co-founder and head of product at Ferret. Ferret is an AI-based due diligence solution. I am wondering if they can actually help me with my taxes, but we'll get to that later with, with Matt. So keep that in mind, Matt. I'm coming back to that. With Ferret, you can uncover hidden legal records. You can uncover news that's been suppressed or deleted online. It helps you trust the relationships that you're building. If you invest in Ferret, you're investing in due diligence. There's your infomercial, Matt. You, you can cut that, take that out, and, and I'll charge you later. <laughs> you can unpack this with Matt. Uh, Matt, uh, thank you for being here. I greatly appreciate it. Please take a moment to introduce yourself in your own words. Hi, Al. Great to be here. And uh, I'm afraid that while Ferret can't help you do your taxes, what it will be able to do is uh, tell the people that you're doing business with if you didn't pay your taxes and the government's chasing after you trying to get it back. So as you <laughs> mentioned, I'm the head of product and the co-founder of Ferret. And I come here from a data background. I'm a systems engineer, studied at the University of Toronto, currently doing a, an MBA at UCLA, focusing in information management and part of the Anderson Accelerator program there on campus. And after working stints in banking, doing um, model development for a big bank and data analysis for medical research, I pivoted into the startup world. Uh, my first company was a social media analytics and monetization company, and then got in, actually became an angel investor myself, uh, working with, on business development with our clients, including some that were in the AI space. You know, we did multilingual chatbots for central banks across Africa, did some, some blockchain projects, an air quality sensor network with NASA and the State Department. Before I joined Rob Lawhan, a serial entrepreneur with some big unicorn exits under his belt, and Al McDonald, who's a veteran in the anti-money laundering and due diligence worlds, to launch Ferret, which is the world's first automated due diligence platform. So I did look at your LinkedIn, and you, yeah, you've got quite a, a resume with several different uh, companies. What do you consider as your brand? Because I saw you know business development manager with Flawless Photonics, and then co-founder, lead technical consultant with Two Lakes Group, and then head of product at Ferret. So what is your brand? You, is it data? You mentioned that to start. Yeah, my brand is really you know, data-driven um, decision-making and using new tech, be it blockchain, AI, uh, to solve problems really in you know, emerging tech fields. So you are now like you're a serial entrepreneur, the way I, I heard you say it. So what made you head in that direction and what is the traction so you, you really can't stop? Hence the serial. Absolutely. Yeah, really, it's that zero to one part of a startup is my favorite part of the journey. Uh, it's finding some innovative new technology, be it blockchain, be it AI, being applied in a new area. And having this idea about how it can solve a problem and then actually getting to implement it demonstrate that it does solve the problem, and then bringing in people who know more about building a much bigger, fast-growing, scaling company around it as I uh, you know, move into another interesting area that piques my interest. 
Do you get in the funding space? I mean, looking to get it uh, funded by venture capital? Do you, do you work those channels or do you spend most of your time in the development area? A big part of my focus is actually on the fundraising side. So, yeah. you know, I've raised more than $30 million at this point for various startups, typically in the early seed to series A space. Um, and then actually got to sit on the other side of the table at Two Lakes Group, uh, making early stage investments in startups where, you know, we felt that we could help get them to, you know, from the zero to one to actual, you know, their, their own series A or eventual exit. So Ferret, it started in 2020, did it not? Or somewhere around there? It did, yeah. It's been in development for quite a while because it's gone through a few different iterations um, before it's you know finally come to the stage it is now in its uh, beta program. So starting during a pandemic is the way I look at it. Though I, I, I hear what you're saying in that, you know, really it was in development sometime before that. But why why during the pandemic why did that make the time to really take this make it an official company start getting funding or was there funding already gathered prior to that it just wasn't openly known or ferret was a company behind the scenes can you explain that more the story around the founding of the company is definitely unusual for me uh there's a company called Nomino Data. This is a company that does big data, anti-money laundering, enterprise due diligence solutions. It's been around for more than 15 years. You know, they go head to head with companies like LexisNexis, Thomson Reuters, and uh, you know, one of the co-founders of Ferret, he owns that company. The other co-founder of Ferret, he invested in that company almost 15 years ago. Um, and he would find himself, he's an angel investor too, he would use Nomino data to do some due diligence on the people that he was uh, meeting and you know, using this application himself to find out, oh, is this person in the middle of a lawsuit? Is this person in, uh, um, you know, lying about their background? And you know, he was a victim of a really bad uh, due diligence situation where he should have done due diligence himself. Here's the story. Um, you know, he was running a fast growing startup and they needed to raise capital. And somebody from a big name investment bank called him and said, hey, I have a client of mine who has just sold his business. He's got $100 million burning a hole in his pocket. He wants to meet you. He flies out to New York. He meets this guy and they just hit it off right away. You know, this person says, I'm going to write the check for your company. I'm going to be here for every future round in this business too. He writes the check, they get the money and uh, they do it as a convertible note. And you know, a convertible note is essentially debt. The IP for the company is the collateral for that loan. He says, don't worry about that. At the next round, we're going to, I'll be there for the next round too. But right before that note comes due, he calls it and says, you have to repay all of this money. And at that point, the company had tripled in valuation, but they didn't have the cash to pay him back. And he effectively took over the company. It was a hostile takeover. And you know, the CEO now of Ferret, he had just lost this business that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars to an investor. And it turned out that this guy had done it three previous times and had been sued by three previous companies for doing this exact same thing. And it was after that experience when he invested in this Nomino data company, because they were promising to be able to solve this problem for other companies. And now the idea for Ferret is... Why just have companies have access to this type of due diligence data? Why not make it available to everybody? Wow, that's quite the story. So did he lose the, the whole company? Never got it back? Or was there a lawsuit that, that worked in his favor? I mean, 
it, it was. There, a, is there another part? What's the? As Paul Harvey would say, "What's the end of the story here?" He'd say, <laughs> well, it gets even worse. So the rest of the story is: you know, this guy does a hostile takeover. He kicks out the CEO. He shows up at work on Monday morning as the new CEO. He installed himself. Every employee got in line, walked into his office, and put their bags on or their boxes on his desk, their computers, their papers, and walked out. He had a complete exodus of the entire brain trust of the company and was left with a, you know, with a $300 million company that went to zero as soon as all those employees walked out the door. So he didn't uh, make a dime out of it. He didn't make a dime. Uh, there was a giant lawsuit. The guy, uh, you know, the CEO fair, he won the lawsuit. But at that point, the company was dead. Wow. And he'd done it two other times? He had done it two other times or three other times. Three and other with Ferret, when we did raise money for Ferret, Every single investor that came into the company, we have over 35 investors in this company. Yeah. Every one of them had a story. Every one of them, they would, thing, give, huh? they would give us a name. We'd put the name in and they would say, I knew it. I knew it. There was something wrong with this guy. In the story example that you outlined, did none of the history, I mean, whenever you're taking money with venture funding, you, you obviously do research mm -hmm. on who you're taking money from, but none of these lawsuits or anything came up that rung a bell that made you go, wait a second, what's going on here? Now, uh, people think that they do more diligent due diligence than they actually do. You know, when most people do due diligence, they think, oh, I just got introduced to this guy by a partner at one of the leading investment banks in the country. They must have done their due diligence on this client. Or maybe you Google somebody. And if you Google them, you know, you and I know that could be subject to SEO. Somebody might be giving you a pseudonym. In this case, the guy was actually using a pseudonym. He was using his middle name on all the contracts. Um, or you might look them up on LinkedIn. You can put anything on LinkedIn. I can put that I'm the CEO of Amazon tomorrow. There's no red flag that gets popped up, nothing. And even in big invest, like you know, venture capital deals, the due diligence is always the very last step. You know, the deal is done. The papers are typically signed. Then it goes to the due diligence office in the back. And, you know, that's where they may find something if they actually do a deep dive search. And that's where they're using one of these big enterprise solutions like a LexisNexis or Thomson Reuters. So, all right, we'll dive into Ferret then. But first off, you've got to tell me the name. What's behind the name, Ferret? <laughs> so Ferret is, the word has two meanings. One is the cute, fuzzy little animal that you know, we all know and love and even makes an appearance in our logo. Uh, but ferret is also a verb. Ferret means to search for something, to dig for something. It's to find the proverbial needle in a haystack. And that is really what our algorithms are doing. Would it be right for me to say, I can use it in a sentence today, you know, with my colleagues here, I could say, hey, I'm going to go ferret your name today. Absolutely. Is that the right usage? That is the right usage. And you get a lovable animal as a logo in addition. People can't think that we're big brother if our logo is an adorable ferret. <laughs> I did look and I thought nicely done on the logo. Very well done. Explain due diligence to me then. You kind of started talking about it and obviously you've got a lot of in-depth information, maybe hopefully some facts and statistics that I'll stay on those that are listening about those that think they're doing due diligence, but most of us don't. We just scratch the surface and we find ourselves in hot water. Yeah. So due diligence is effectively knowing who is on the other side of the table. And right now we're in a world, you, know, you mentioned before COVID and you know, the impact that had on starting the company, but we're in a world now of doing business with people around the world that you typically haven't met face to face. 
and you know deals are happening faster than ever. You know, in venture capital, deals are happening now about three times faster than they did uh, before COVID. There's more money chasing less companies. Due diligence is being pushed to the wayside, and as a result, fraud in venture capital is up by billions of dollars a year. Um, you know, the most uh, famous example in recent years being Theranos, which was uh, covering up negative, uh, you know, negative news reports and test reports about their products and failed to disclose that to their investors. Um, if those investors had been using Ferret, it would have automatically been pushed to them when those negative reports came out uh, so that they had a notification waiting for them one morning about, oh my goodness, these uh, you know, medical journals are talking about how bad the uh, the, the the test results are for a company I invested in four years ago, maybe I should call the CEO and see what's going on there. Um, but the traditional due diligence world right now is uh, it's really archaic. It's somebody in a back office doing a very manual search um, where they're looking for you know, a person's name, their address, their date of birth, and they're sorting through you know, 500 John Smiths to find the right person, to find that needle in a haystack. And um, you know, what we try to do is bring that due diligence from that back office up to everybody at the front line of an organization and to everybody uh, so that this due diligence is happening the second you add a contact to your phone. But keeping yeah. it simple, what does Ferret do and how does it do it? So this kind of gets into the different algorithms that power this. Um, so there's, there's four primary components that go into Ferret. One is analyzing articles. So these might be news articles, court records, um, you know, anti-money laundering information, offshore banking. Um, but there's analysis that has to happen of those articles to figure out who is doing what to whom. Can we identify the people, the companies, the places, the things, and be able to match those to real, real people? The second one is people analysis. It's, it's, you know, we have some databases, think like a white papers type database of who somebody is and where they live and where they work. But, you know, we're also getting information from users. They might be uploading contacts. They might be connecting us to social media where we can build these social graphs, you know, like the John Smith that you're looking for. You know, if you have three friends who all know a John Smith, then you're probably looking for the same one. Think like the second and third and fourth degree connections that you see somewhere like LinkedIn. So people analysis is really important. Then there is user feedback. You know, we have been trying to make these connections between people and data, but people then are also saying, yes, this is my person, or no, this is not my person, and I'm going to provide a little bit more information so you can make the matching right. Um, so that is where user interaction helps train these models. And at the same time, we have to be looking for gaming. We don't want people to be able to say, um, you know, you know, trying to influence search results like you would on SEO. So the models have to be able to detect people trying to influence that match. And finally, there's the, the notification piece. You, know, you add a new contact to your phone, we're going to send you the most important information that you need to know. Like before you got on the call with me, you could have got a push notification that said, oh, hey, this mad guy, he's in the middle of three lawsuits and has been convicted of fraud. You should cancel this interview right now. Or you get a push notification that said, hey, he's run these previous businesses and sold his first startup. And this is going to be some interesting news that you might not know about Matt. It's pushing those notifications to you just in time for you to make better decisions with it. To restate, analyzing like articles, people analysis, user feedback in the notification portion. Yes. Those are the four different elements. Yeah. Those are the four key algorithms that make the magic happen. All algorithms that it looks like most of those algorithms are surfing, lack of a better term, surfing the, the, the web 
on information. True? That is true. Do you see, consider this enterprise or commercial straight to the customer? Would I buy it? So we think that there are applications for due diligence pretty much everywhere. You know, the corporate example is really obvious. There's a SaaS yeah. play there of bringing due diligence to the frontline people in an organization. But there's also use cases for just normal people. Um, I don't know if you're a Netflix junkie. Netflix goes through phases. They used to have like a true crime push right now. Now it's all about fraudsters. You know, the Tinder swindler, um, bad vegan, <laughs> inventing Anna, all of those cases. There's a use case there where, you know, in bad vegan, Anthony Stringis, he swindled um, like a Wharton grad to raise money for his startup chain. Well, it turned out that this guy was a con man who went to jail for impersonating a cop. So the people that um, you know he was trying to raise money from would have immediately got a push notification that said, hey, this guy has a criminal record for fraud. Same thing in that Inventing Anna story. The, the Tinder swindler had a criminal history and lawsuits that would have popped up as soon as anybody added him to their contacts. There's due diligence in everyday lives that, you know, that's the reason why we're trying to democratize this data. It shouldn't just be banks and governments who have this type of data. It should be protecting everybody. And that's why, you know, making a free, accessible version of Ferret has been part of our design all along. Sounds like this is your time on Netflix and then you're watching all the, the stuff that you're trying to prevent, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We're like, could we have caught that? type? <laughs> Back to the original question I had then. So, and you kind of said it, and that's exactly what I was thinking. You said, why should banks and governments have access to this information? Well, some of that stuff is still behind the firewall you can't get to. I mean, I'm working with governments on a regular basis. I don't know if there's any repositories you have access to beyond what's on the web, or is it just web-based? Uh, so we do have access to databases that, you know, they are or were public records, but it's not something that's going to show up on a Google search. You know, maybe you need to sign up on a particular state's webs, um, court websites in order to get access to certain records. You know, certain regulatory data disclosures, they are public, but you, know, you need to have a license in order to access it, then you can disseminate it. So we have information that is public records, but maybe it's gone off the web. Maybe it's a you know, hard to find, doesn't get indexed, and we bring that all to the surface. So there is stuff happening behind the firewall, and then the enterprise solutions will also include some additional information that is non-public, uh, but that's further down the pipeline. How does the process start? By example, you say, "Hey, I'm going to do a podcast with Al. Let me put Al Martin into my engine here. Let's see what he. Oh, it's really Albert Martin. Oh no, that's just his longer name." So how does the process start? And do you use it on your, your personal day-to-day -to, -day to check things? Yeah. So the process in the on the mobile app side is we, we try to make it super automated. We connect to your phone contacts and your Google contacts, if you authorize it, so that as soon as I add a new contact, if there's something I need to know, it's going to send that to me as a push notification. Or I can open the app and I can go and do a search for somebody. It's very conversation-based. You know, I think there are 20 questions of trying to get to the right Al Martin out of all the Al Martins in the country. I might have to say what show you do or where you live or what company you work for, and it's going to get me to you. But absolutely, I am already using this in my normal life. I was at a conference in Florida a month ago. It was like a family office conference with people there who were investors, people there who were raising money. And I was just adding people to my phone. And uh, I get a push notification from Fair that says, oh, hey, this investor that you just met, um, it turns out that he had, uh, I believe, lost his banking license in the UK and been convicted of money laundering and bounced out of the country and came to the US and was passing himself off as an investor here. 
So yeah, those, those types of just-in-time uh, push notifications, <laughs> they're already coming in handy. Is it always negative or a caution, a warning? So this is what does set us apart from some of the corporate due diligence solutions. They typically just care about the negative. We have gone out and added the positive. And we've pulled in you know, investment histories. We've pulled in positive news analysis. We've pulled in like business registration history. So we, we really do try to give people a, a full 360 picture. We'll notify people about good news too. Now the million dollar question, would your founder have been prevented of making that deal had he had ferret? Yes, he would. That was one of the guiding use cases when we were coming up with this. As soon as he added that phone number to his contacts, like, oh yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Or as soon as that calendar got added with that guy's email address on there, he would have got a push notification and said, oh, hey, there's three lawsuits here that you might need to know about. And then he would have checked and said, oh yeah, he's gotten sued by the past three companies he invested in for hostile takeovers. Maybe I won't take this guy's money. What about Theranos? Theranos, so Elizabeth Holmes, she was squeaky clean, but her business partner, that guy had a pretty uh, checkered past, mostly negative news stories. It definitely would have raised some red flags, um, but at the end of the day, it does still rely on a user to make a judgment call. Um, but yeah, we do actually analyze. So if you are part of a company and the other board members on that company have negative past, we're going to notify you about that. You know, she said that it was all his fault. So do you agree then? He's the one that had all the, the baggage that came along. Well, <laughs> so we don't make those type of judgments, but uh, we definitely, at least this would have been a, a red flag for you to go and do some more due diligence. Now, having said that, if somebody's using your product, let's say it's a corporate implementation, uh, do they review findings with you and you assess, hey, yes, let me... Let me let me talk about these findings, at least relative to what we see. Or do you stay completely out of it and say, look, it is what it is, man. You're going to have to figure it out. We don't make judgments about people. We make judgments about um, the data. You know, is this article positive or negative? How confident are we that this person matches this article, you know, based off of the community learning, based off of um, you know, some of our AI, um, but it's we, we kind of fall into the same category in this case of like a search engine. Google doesn't make a determination about whether you're a good or a bad person. They're showing you the results that come back for their article. Or for their so to, but taking that a little bit further, let's get technical for a second. AI are essentially ML models, uh, algorithms that you're putting into, uh, in, into the system and they learn, right? They learn and as they learn, they get better. Right. Uh, can you talk more about that? And do you have bias detection? I mean, this thing would be, you would think, would be key to have bias um, detection built in and explainability while you're reading, you know, anything. You, you read the National Enquirer, you don't know what you're going to get, right? You can get right. all kinds of negative things that are incorrect. Uh, I'm just making an example. But I mean, you, you can read all kinds of negative things. In fact, most of the stuff that I read on the internet is negative. How do you separate fact from fiction? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And our bias reduction and um, AI is incredibly good at taking what you give it, analyzing it, and being very good at uh, you know, applying the model that it learned off of whatever you trained it with. So if you train it with biased data, it's going to give you biased results. 
You know, we've seen that with uh, advanced criminal prediction software that you hear about in the media where, you know, it, it winds up over predicting uh, offense rates for you know, people in certain zip codes or minorities and has ended up getting ripped out in places like New York. Instead, what we've been very careful to do with Ferret is to make sure that the data that goes in is unbiased. There are certain things that we just don't think are relevant uh, in terms of business relevance or safety relevance. Those are the two things that we really care about the most. Is somebody going to, you know, is somebody physically dangerous or is somebody a bad person from a business perspective or a good person from a business perspective? We don't care about your, like an arrest record for a marijuana conviction when you were 18. That's relevant. We don't care about mugshots. We don't care about so many level, like low level crimes where a lot of bias can potentially be uh, included in what gets swept up in that data. Instead, we're focusing on you know, business history, um, actual convictions for money laundering, for insider trading, um, and information that comes from authoritative sources, be it government or be it you know, vetted uh, news outlets, et cetera, so that we can train the models on as unbiased of data as possible and then try to detect if bias is being applied. Uh, at any point along the process. So you purposely choose the data repositories that you're going to train these models against. We do. And that is where the you know, human element is absolutely still a part of the equation. If we just set the models loose on the entire corpus of news, it would come out just you know, sounding like Breitbart. <laughs> Two different use cases. One, one is the mobile app um, for that. You just download ferret.ai. Um, it'll be right now. It's a test flight beta distribution. You can sign up on uh, ferret.ai uh, to try it out. But you like you download that. You connect it to your phone contacts, your Google contacts, if you want, um, and you can do ad hoc searches to look up due diligence information on people. Or that is all available for free. But if you want to do monitoring, if you want to monitor your contacts, if you want to have it automatically check all of your contacts um, that you, you know, add to your Google contacts or your phone, that is a uh, subscription plan. Um, on the enterprise side, likewise, freemium model, um, we allow them to do ad hoc searches for uh, connected to their uh, CRM databases in order to bring in due diligence on um vendors or customers or uh, potential partners. And again, the monitoring and certain data sets are premium uh, through the enterprise SaaS plan. So there's an enterprise SaaS plan and there's also a subscription plan? Yeah, an enterprise SaaS plan and then the mobile app. And the, the mobile app, um, that one is accessible to everybody. And that's actually the part that's coming out first that's uh, available in beta right now. Uh, and then the enterprise SaaS plan that has all the integrations into CRMs, et cetera, uh, that piece will be coming out a little later this year. What about the enterprise? Where do I get that? So the enterprise plan will be a web-based uh, like SaaS platform, and it'll also be um, a effectively an app inside things like the Salesforce App Store, an add-in to CRM tools. Oh, I see. So you won't be, in that case, selling directly to a client, or will you? In other words, will be. you will be. Well, I mean, I thought maybe you'd be selling to like uh, Salesforce and have it as an add-on, or do you sell it to like IBM who uses Salesforce and then it's added on? That will vary a little bit per platform. Um, you know, making it available in somewhere like the Salesforce app store um, will mean that an individual client could do it or for somebody like IBM, they could purchase it and have it installed as part of, in the CRM. If I'm a corporate client 
who am I monitoring in this case? Would it be like the customers in Salesforce that we have listed where you can provide information, which is a integration with Salesforce and there'll be like a spot within Salesforce that provides you information like those notifications you're talking about or how would that play out? Yeah, so two places inside the CRM where we see that being really useful. One is, as you mentioned, basically being an extra um, section in a contact view where you're able to see all the contact information about that person and their relationships, et cetera. Then you'll also have a due diligence pane, which is where the ferret data gets pulled in. Um, so that can be for a company to monitor their vendors, to monitor their customers, to uh, monitor um, anybody who's really connected to the organization. But there's also integration with the mobile app on the enterprise uh, plan as well. So people in the front line of the organization will have the application on their phones, connect to their business contacts, and the people that they are meeting um, and that are at this point having contact with your organization. If there's a red flag in the, uh, you know, say a sales prospect that one of your salespeople is talking to, at least this way, there'll be a way to notify management that, hey, this deal that's getting worked on right now poses risks that you might not know about and can elevate that as part of the uh, sales review process. Where do you think your biggest opportunity in terms of ferret growth is today? Is it going to be on the mobile app side or you think it's going to be on the enterprise side? So we believe that the largest growth area is actually going to be on the uh, the commercial side, uh, business to consumer, because we think that with a entry price of $0, there are so many use cases where people can do due diligence um, you know, on their contractors on their teachers on their um the people that they are considering working with or doing business with there's uh where this will add a lot of value uh that people just haven't again it's previously not been available to the average consumer before it won't be priced at zero forever or will there will always be an entry level plan for zero dollars and uh again that might be more of an ad hoc solution that's the way that it is right now that doesn't include monitoring um but that's the entry point I want, to, I want to give you one number. There's more than 650 million LinkedIn users right now. Those are people who care about their social networks and where those people work and what they say their professional updates are. Over 30% of them pay for premium. And those 30% pay an average of over $35 per month uh, in order to access premium data on LinkedIn. And again, that is user-generated content. We are offering machine-validated um, information about those same contacts. And yeah, that's really where the total addressable market size is of uh, you know, the people who care about those networks and the people that they're connected to. And uh, we're providing richer data about those contacts. I always wondered that. What'd you say? 30%? Was it 30? Over 30%. That's amazing to me, paying $35 a month. Yeah. Um, those premium plans, they start around 30 and go up to uh, over $100 a month for premium. No kidding. Like I go in and out, I, I'll pay for a while. And then I say, look, I'm not using it. I get out and then I get back in, but there is some value there, but 30%, that's, that's actually astounding to me. I've often learned that um, if something's free, you're the one that's being sold. And the, think the Slack model, you start using Slack for free. You get your team on board. You start to really realize the value in it. And then at some point you hit a limit where uh, you want to have more conversations. You want to add more users and you hit that paywall where, okay, I'm going to flip over to the subscription plan now because I want to continue using this. In our version uh, or in Ferret, 
you get a certain number of searches per month uh, that you can do for free. Um, but on the premium plan, you get unlimited searches and you get to turn on monitoring. So if you've connected your contact list, we might know, oh, hey, somebody that you interact with all the time, they've got some red flags that you should probably look at. Um, and the the conversion there is to be able to you know, have a pipeline of people that see the value, um, they get to get hooked on the value in the free plan, and they're going to see the value in converting to turn on that monitoring or to do more than the limited number of searches per month. You talk about using contacts within the phone. I think the challenge, if you could make it work with my phone, you can make it work with any phone. And the reason I say that is my contacts, you know, going back to data being, it all goes back to the data being clean. My data and my contacts are terrible, you know, because I'll enter a, you know, somebody that I meet and I'll put like Steve, because it's, you know, it's, it's with no last name sometimes even, but maybe I put the last name, maybe I spell it right, maybe I spell it wrong. And then sometimes underneath for the company, like one time I put house guy because he was selling his house and it was something else. And then he calls me later. It was kind of embarrassing. And I look at my phone and it's go, you're the house guy. And he's like, what are you talking about? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about how this has been in development for two years. Uh, yeah. It turned out that being able to analyze people, people's contacts was one of the biggest challenges that we had to overcome, um, especially maintaining privacy throughout that entire process while still being able to analyze it. So a lot of it has to happen on the phone side. Um, but one example, somebody at one point, just the first name field would have the first and last name and their phone number and where they met that person and their notes. That was for every contact, and we had to be able to identify uh, who that who they were actually talking about. So what we do is, this, this is where, again, there's some AI piece. Can we suss out where the name is, where the employer is, however you chose to store that? What do we just disregard entirely? And then it's using keys like phone numbers or email addresses to then connect to real identities. Those are keys that, at some point, we can match against one of those, let's say, uh, uh, white pages style database in order to at least get a real name and then connect that to what we already know about that person um, through uh, you know, whether it's articles that we've already connected to that identity or whether it's some validation that other users have said, yes, this article matches that person. If we can use a phone number or an email address to make that connection, um, then that helps us get around a lot of very messy contact data. I guess at the end of the day, you'd have phone number, what, which is a unique identifier one way right. or another. Yes. And that would help greatly. That, makes that is very valuable. If you don't have that, that's also where we get into the 20 questions game. You might have this really unstructured contact uh, that we might have to ask you, um, does this person live here or here? Because maybe it matches a couple different potential people in our database. Does this, do you know if this person works here? Do you know roughly how old this person is? And by answering those questions, then we're going to try to lock that onto a real identity. Um, but there is that interaction with the user uh, in these muddier conditions. Do you use any master data management to kind of link those records? We do, yes. And you mentioned something about data privacy. That was one of my next questions. What is your position on data privacy and how does that play out? Yeah. Uh, before we hired a development team for Ferret, uh, we hired a law firm. Actually, we hired two law firms. It comes down to what type of information do we use? Again, publicly available information. It was publicly available at some point. It's encrypting any information that is provided by a user and keeping all of the contact data contained to that user. 
Um, and then it is being compliant with all applicable regulations. CCPA is applicable to us um, because we have California users. We have to remain fully compliant with that, um, as well as other appropriate regulations in the states in which we operate. So yeah, we are privacy compliant, um, and that is a constantly evolving landscape that constantly requires changes inside the application. Where do you think this technology is going? Like if I talk to you two years from now, what will change? Well, I think that this technology is going to become pretty universal. Like we're in a world right now where people care more than ever about who they associate with. Um, I think that there's going to be paths in the future where there's um, more analysis like user-generated content, where there's more social media analysis that gets brought into this. That's an area where we are studying but haven't really found, cracked the code on how to do that in a way that protects personal privacy. Um, but I also think that this is going to go in a direction of more universal access, plugins for um, to bring due diligence information into LinkedIn, into dating websites, into um, anywhere where any marketplace where you're interacting with people so that you have a full picture about who you're doing business with. Who's your biggest competition right now? Uh, so that we are really forging new space here. There's really two categories of competitors. One is... Um, the big enterprise due diligence software uh, solutions, LexisNexis, Thomson Reuters, Clear, com uh, Crawl, companies like that. Those are companies that are you know, five figures per seat and really available to a limited few people. Then there are, I want to call them like novelty background check companies. These are when you go and look somebody up on Google, they'll tell you, we have 55 important records about this person. And the sites are... You know, they're very limited in the type of data that they have. They're not very reliable. They don't have a lot of learning behind them. Um, yeah. And where we go is effectively trying to be as universal as those companies, um, but using the quality of data as the big guys. So that's how we wind up in kind of a quadrant of our own right now. The marketing that we're pursuing right now is we're actually speaking with business leaders. We're speaking, we're talking to investors and startup founders to tell their own stories of when they wish to, they did due diligence. You know, maybe they have a story like the one I told about our CEO, mm -hmm. um, about when they got burned by an investor. Some of them missed an opportunity because, you know, they met a founder, they didn't really think that they were uh, credible and they went on to make billions. Um, so we're trying to do longer, longer form storytelling to get people thinking about, wow, I really do need to do due diligence in my life. Um, rather than just going after the shock value piece. And that's why we're, uh, you know, that's why we love shows like this, where we can really dive into the, uh, you know, deeper rationale, the logic, the use cases, rather than going for uh, some clickbait uh, that you'd see uh, from uh, some of our competitors in the novelty background check business. What's Ferris in state? Okay, so we do have this vision of, we call it delusions of grandeur. But our delusions of grandeur is actually making a dent in the number of bad actions that happen in the world because people worked with or spent time with or got into relationships with bad actors and actually being able to then create more meaningful value out of good relationships uh, that didn't slip through the cracks. So our end state is really 
universal transparency. You know, maybe that's when we are fully integrated into other platforms or social media where this type of due diligence is just something everybody knows. Um, and we can actually track these are how many bad deeds we prevented versus these are how many good deeds we were able to help make happen uh, at scale. Hit me with one last example, pop culture, that'll get the listeners thinking. Well, we talked before about how this is all the rage right now in terms of uh, you know Netflix binge watching. There was one more I want to talk about, uh, Inventing Anna. This yes. is another example where Ferret could have saved the people. Like, if Ferret truly does get universal, Netflix is just going to have to kill this whole segment because these stories won't <laughs> happen anymore. In this case, yo, Anna was pretending to be a German heiress. She was raising money for this private social club. You know, if people had looked her up, they would have found, wait a minute, there's no records coming back for this person who was claiming to be this like, uh, you know, rich and famous person from abroad. Maybe I should put her phone number in. And when they put the phone number in, they would have found her real name connected to a bunch of Russian records, and her Russian lawsuits and her Russian uh, business history and thought, hmm, maybe this is not somebody I should be uh, putting my money into. But then you wouldn't have had the story to watch. And you know, we do apologize to the viewers for our impact on uh, the next several years of content. <laughs> have you put Anna actually in your system? Yeah, we rolled back the clock and put in the information that she was telling people early on. Nothing shows up. All the stories were made up. You know, that would have been a red flag right there. But you put in her real name, and that is when all of the Russian records show up, and you find out why she left the country. So I encourage people to uh, go to ferret.ai, download the beta, and plug in her real name. See what shows up. Hey, uh, Matt, thank you very much. Where can folks find you? Uh, people can find uh, me on LinkedIn. I'm Matt Heisey over there. Um, and go check out the Ferret Beta yourself over at ferret.ai. Sounds great. Thank you for, for being with us today. Before I leave, my one last question. Where do you lose time? Meaning, what do you do for fun that, that encapsulates you? What do you do for fun? I'm a part of a group called the We Are LA Tech. We do in-person experiences, um, be it everything from horseback riding to skydiving to, uh, you know, paint nights for members of the LA tech community. Uh, you know, a lot of us work in small groups or at home. This is a way to really help get everybody out and networking and doing fun stuff that's not just uh, you know, dinner and drinks. Well, I appreciate uh, the deep dive, uh, the questions that you asked, really diving into the algorithm uh, or algorithms and how this all works. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to uh, hear any stories that you uncover as you do dig into the platform yourself. Well, everybody, you know where to reach Matt. Thank you for listening. We always appreciate it. Reach us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to bring on your next guest. So thank you for listening. And until next time, I will see you on the podcast.